0: Now let's uh, turn for our text to the same text we had in the morning, the letter to the Hebrews and chapter 11. Chapter on faith, which highlights the faith of many of God's eminent men and women in the Old Testament. And in verse 23, although the words begin by faith Moses, as you read on, you'll discover that the faith highlighted is actually the faith of his parents. By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents, because they saw he was a beautiful child, and they were not afraid of the king's command. So by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents, and we looked at that in the morning, and tonight let's turn to the next part, because They saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. Now, in the morning we saw the difficult circumstances in which uh, Jochebed uh, fell pregnant. She conceived a child just at the point when her people had fallen to become victims of a genocide at the hands of the king of Egypt. And that's in spite of her own prayers and the prayers of many of God's people that God would visit them in Egypt and deliver them out of their bondage. God had taken them to Egypt, first of all, for their preservation. And for a long time they were blessed there, but they began to compromise with Egyptian society and with Egyptian worship, and so God allowed them to be brought into bondage. That gradually moved the Lord's people to pray for their deliverance, and they knew from the word of God that the time of deliverance would come in the fourth generation. They knew that because of what Abraham had said Mm -hmm. and that they, they also had the promise of Joseph to that effect too as well as the encouragement of seeing his tomb or at least his sarcophagus before them constantly. But amazingly, though they had the promise of deliverance for the fourth generation, that is the generation that started being thrown into the Nile under the tyranny of Pharaoh. And uh, as I said, in the morning so often God allows a great darkness just before the light for his own reasons, some of which we saw in the morning. But of course this leaves Jochebed with a choice to make. Either she can report the birth of her child, which means the death of the child, or else she can take the risk of keeping the child. And, of course, if she's discovered, if the child's discovered, that won't just mean the death of the child. It'll probably mean the death of her three-year-old son, Aaron, and also her daughter, Miriam, who is older than that, as well as her husband. So the death of one child or the death of the family. Now, tonight I want to focus with you on her response and the response of her husband too the Bible famously tells us that they responded in faith by faith Moses parents hid him when we put it that way we see clearly that the faith belongs to Moses parents not to Moses it was, of course simply an infant by faith Mor- Moses parents hid him for three months Now, as always, faith is believing God's word and acting accordingly. It's as simple as that. If you're asking what faith is, what is faith in God? It is believing God's word and acting accordingly. In other words, if God says something, you believe it. If God commands something, you do it. It's as simple as that. And that's the relationship between faith and obedience. It's really a very simple relationship. It's as straightforward as anything could be. When God says something, you believe it. When God commands something, you do it. That's why in connection with God's commands, faith is always a visible thing. It acts. It acts in response to the word of God. And all the examples in the famous chapter of faith, are like that. Just to take one, Noah is told of an impending flood and a cosmic judgment. He believes the word of God and therefore he builds an ark for the preservation of his household. If he hadn't built the ark, you would say, well, I don't think he really believed in the first place, and you would be right. But his actual building of the ark is the proof that he believed what God said. So if you believe what God says, you will do what God commands. So here tonight, if if the Bible says to you, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, then your response to that must be to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that Lord Jesus Christ in whom you believe is the one who commands you to take up your cross and follow him. So you will do that your belief will mean that you become a disciple. If you don't become a disciple, obviously you haven't believed. So then, Moses' parents obviously believe and they obey. Now, what do I mean by saying they obey? Well, for them, the duty is plain. Pharaoh may well say that Every son is to be killed. But God says, Thou shalt not kill. And Jochebed and Amram both know that to report their child is effectively to be an accessory to murder. And so they resolve to keep the child. Because God's word is plain. Sometimes people pray for guidance Because, well, not because, but they pray for guidance even though they know what God really wants. I've seen plenty cases of that in my own time in the ministry where people come to me and say, I'm looking for guidance on this. And I know fine when they say that, that they're not actually looking for guidance at all. They're looking for affirmation for a course of action which they've already purposed in their hearts. So there's very little point in saying anything. Their mind's already made up. If God's word is plain on the matter, don't waste time asking guidance. Neither for that matter, don't waste your time asking for the affirmation of somebody else who you think will say the same thing to you as the thing you've already agreed to do yourself. For her, for Amram too, the word of God was plain because they're not at liberty to give their child to the jaws of death now why or how did they do that how did they resolve to take this great risk of keeping the child you could say they had no alternative of course they did but we're told that they took this decision not afraid of the king's commandment that is Pharaoh's commandment They weren't afraid of it. Now at one level you could say that they were, they must have been. By nature they must have been. It's a terrible thing to be aware of the fact that the society around you is watching you very closely. And if there's a suspicion of a child in the house, your whole family may well be wiped out. That's something to be afraid of by nature. But when the Bible says that they're not afraid of the king's command, what it means simply is that they feared God more than the king. They had more respect for God's commandment rather than for the king's commandment. So naturally they might have a fear of Pharaoh, but in their hearts the greater fear was the fear of the Lord, the desire to honour him, the desire to respect and to keep his commandments. That was uppermost in their hearts because they were a godly couple, a godly man And a godly woman. So for them the king of kings was to be obeyed. And not the king of Egypt. It's a little bit. In fact it's very like the midwives that we considered in the morning. They were put under as part of the genocide. The initial part of the genocide. The genocide was to be mediated effectively through the Hebrew midwives. And they were told to kill the male children when they were born. But were told that they feared God. And so they didn't kill the Hebrew boys. They kept them alive. And as I mentioned in the morning when Pharaoh saw that this amazing birth rate amongst the people of God was growing and growing. He he called them to account. And of course they they span a story about the Hebrew woman being more lively and giving birth. And by the time they got there, it was too late. They were born. But we're told that God blessed the midwives and he made them households or he gave them families i, I can't help but wonder it's not my own thought i've se- i've seen it elsewhere but i i think it may well be the case that sometimes midwives perhaps were were those who were themselves single or free uh, maybe they just were not able to conceive but god opened their wombs and he did so as a reward and uh, That is a reminder to us that um, those that honour him, God will honour. Not always in the ways that we expect. Sometimes we expect God to honour in certain ways. For example, uh, if I lose my job because I am keeping God's Sabbath, I will be immediately given another job. That's not perhaps the way that God will honour you. But he will honour you. He will honour you. And he will honour you visibly, too, for honouring him publicly. Um, He will find his own way of honouring you. So, the midwives fear God more than Pharaoh, and here Amram and Jochebed also take this decision, because they fear God more than Pharaoh. Now, friends, the kind of life we choose to live very much depends on what we believe and who we fear the most. Who we fear the most. Christ said to the disciples, he warned them that the situation would soon not be as favorable as it had been. and he says they're going to drag you before the authorities and he says, don't be afraid of them because God will stand with you, and don't worry about what to say, because the Holy Spirit will teach you in that same hour what to say. If there's time for preparation, prepare. If not, rely on God. Don't worry about it. He'll give you the words to say. And Christ effectively says, remember that it is more solemn to appear before God's judgment seat than it is to appear before man's judgment seat. And it's in that connection that he utters the famous words, don't fear those who can kill the body. And after that, have no more that they can do but rather fear him who has power to cast both body and soul into hell. Yes, he says, I say to you, fear him. That was spoken to his disciples. Of course, by extension, it's spoken to everyone. Who are you afraid of? Who am I afraid of? Put it another way, whose judgment do you value? Who is it important to please in this life? Whose approval is it really important for you to get? Your peers, your friends, your work colleagues, your parents, relatives, your community, or God? Because all of these can conflict with God's. All of them, even our mother and our father. If we are afraid of those who can just kill the body, that's not wise. Because once they've done that, there's nothing more they can do. I can't remember which martyr it was, but one of the martyrs who was just about to be put to death for his faith essentially quoted these words and said, uh, in a moment uh, you're going to torture me and kill me, but that's all you can do. I'll be in the hands of the Lord in blessedness forevermore. Whereas you, on your part, your sufferings will be endless. So who do you fear, who are you impressing, or whose approval do you seek? Now, when God calls us to do something really difficult, he always gives us an encouragement to do it. Now, he doesn't have to, but God is fundamentally gracious and kind. And God knows the difficulty involved in doing difficult things. There's a reason he calls us to do them, reasons that have to do with our own spiritual well-being, reasons to do with being a blessing to others, reasons to do with the glory of his own great name. (coughs) But he still doesn't ask us to do difficult things without giving us encouragements in doing them. And he does that in connection with Amram and Jochebed's decision. Because the moment the child is born, they saw that he was different. We're told that they saw that he was a beautiful child. A beautiful child. In the book of Exodus, the same word is used he was a beautiful child. The King James had. The word goodly, which is not at all wrong because it actually meant beautiful, or at least that was one meaning that the word goodly had long ago. I suppose it it gives you a slightly different idea now that, that he was good inside, which is not what's being conveyed by the word at all, but simply beautiful. He was a beautiful child. Now, the question before us really here is, What exactly did they see? Or maybe not exactly, but but what is it that they saw? There are aspects of what they saw that I don't think we can fully understand, but what essentially did they see in the face of this little child? Perhaps I can put the question like this. Did they see something natural, or did they see something spiritual? Did they see unnatural beauty, or... A spiritual beauty. Now friends, I would argue very strongly that what they saw was a spiritual beauty on the face of their own child. Some kind of glow or some kind of lustrous appearance that led them to believe that there was something about this child that meant that he belonged to God. Now I've got three reasons for saying that. The first is that just to see that he's a beautiful child naturally doesn't really mean much. I mean, whose child isn't beautiful? Or to put it another way, whose child isn't beautiful to their parents? I mean, it would be a strange set of parents that didn't think that their own child was beautiful. There's more to this than that. The second reason is that the word used here for beautiful in the Hebrew language is a rare word. There's a few words for beauty in both Hebrew and Greek. But the Greek word, did I say Hebrew? The Greek word used here for beauty is very rare. In fact, it only occurs twice in the New Testament and they both relate to Moses. They both relate to Moses. Here, in our text, they saw that he was a beautiful child. The only other time this word is used is in Stephen's sermon, in the book of the Acts, which we read together, or at least we read the extract that had to do with Moses and his parents. At this time, Moses was born, and he was well-pleasing, or literally beautiful, to God. He was beautiful to God. So remember that. A rare word for beauty. Only used of Moses. And third. You'll notice that this beauty here. And here we're thinking of reasons for not thinking of it as a natural beauty. You'll notice that this beauty was Godward. Godward. They saw that he was beautiful to God. God, That's what Stephen says. Beautiful to God. Now there are some versions of Scripture that actually omit the expression to God here. For example, the New International Version says that they saw he was no ordinary child. Now that's actually true. But it's not what's being said here. The A.V. too has the expression, they saw that he was exceedingly fair, or exceedingly beautiful, which again is true, but it's not what's being said here. Although if you, if you do look up the A.V., you'll notice in the margin, there's a little note and it says, or, fair to God, beautiful to God. And it's good that that note is there, because in the Greek it says it very explicitly, to God he was beautiful to God now notice the importance of that in fact this tells you that it's not to do with natural beauty what the parents noticed was something on the child's face that was beautiful to God not to themselves but to God Now, I'm quite sure it would have been beautiful to them because it was beautiful to God. That's not the point. It's nothing subjective about how they felt about it. It's an objective thing on the countenance of the child. That this child is beautiful to God. Some kind of mark of God's favor upon this little boy. Now, we don't know if anybody else saw it. We don't know if anybody else was present. It's quite possible that the Hebrew midwives were still going about their business, more than likely they were, but whether they saw it in the child's face or not doesn't matter. I suppose they didn't need to. Amram and Jochebed needed to. When you're doing a difficult thing, um, you want God to give you comfort, and he does. I think that's how we understand Gideon's signs, when Gideon was called to fight the Midianites, and he felt himself completely inadequate for fighting the Midianites. He he wasn't a soldier, he wasn't trained up to do that kind of thing. He felt it that he was from an insignificant family, a family that had attained to nothing in Israel, no reputation or anything of that kind. And he wanted an assurance from God that this call was real and genuine, and God gave him the signs of the fleece. He gave him a remarkable sign. Mm-hmm. One day there was dew on the ground, none on the fleece. The next day there was dew on the fleece, none on the ground. Now I could have them switched the wrong way around because uh, I sometimes do these things. But both these happened, one day after another. Not just one special sign, but two special signs. Because he was not asking out of unbelief as such, but asking out of a powerful sense of his own unworthiness, and his own incompetence. And God comes down to that kind of level. If his spirit had been otherwise, God would not. He would have come to him with chastisement, like he did to Zacharias, when he doubted that Elizabeth, his wife, could have a child. God chastised his inability to believe, but he didn't chastise Gideon's. Because it grew out of personal unworthiness and personal incompetence. And Amram and Jochebed needed a sign. So whether anybody else saw it, whether any other believer saw it or not, they saw it clearly on the child's face that this child was beautiful to God. The divine favor was upon him. The divine approval, the divine seal was upon him. This child belonged to God. Now there's something about that that's unusual, obviously. It's not unusual to see someone's spiritual condition in someone's face. It's not unusual at all. I've seen conversion on a person's face. And I've seen backsliding on a person's face. And I mean that. I remember a person walking up to me strangely enough as I was washing a car in Glasgow saying hello to me walking up the driveway and I knew they were converted. I also remember meeting another person several years after seeing them before and before they had spoken I knew they were backslidden. I'm not saying that I have a permanent gift for these things. There are many people who are converted I didn't notice it. Many people backslidden, I wouldn't have noticed it, but I did. And it was true. Shouldn't surprise us because, as the psalmist said of God, you are the health of my countenance. And sometimes the spiritual condition is written on our faces. I'm sure if you're a Christian yourself, uh, you'll have noticed it on other people's faces. That's not the unusual thing here. There's a couple of things that are unusual here. The first is that Moses is still just an infant. He's not expressing himself, not expressing his moods or his emotions or his condition at all. In fact, when it comes to his condition, that's the second thing that's difficult to understand because if we understand the Scriptures properly, he hasn't even come to faith yet. If we understand verse 24... right, then I think verse 24 is telling us that he made the choice to follow the Lord when he was 40 years of age. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, and we'll be looking at this just perhaps in a couple of weeks' time, as we're making our way through the book of Exodus by God's grace, but famously in verse 24, by faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, and everything that involved, the kind of life that he had, which was a great life, worldly speaking, from a worldly perspective, he refused that choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. That was his choice. He made that choice. By the grace of God, he was brought to a place where he could see the difference between the world and what it had to offer, and the Christian life and what it had to offer. If that's so, then in his infancy, he is not yet regenerated. He is just like a child who is not the Lord's, just with the same fallen human nature that you and I have or had before our conversion. So how do we understand his face? Well, friends, let me say uh, something, perhaps a couple of things. First of all, he may not yet be the Lord's, but he is his by covenant, and he's God's by purpose and by election. God has already chosen this child to be his own. He has always been the object of God's everlasting love and it was always God's intention to bring him from death to life. So even if he will spend part of his life as a child of wrath like others, notice not a child of hatred, but as a child under the wrath of God, still the time will come because God has appointed it when he will be his own. That means that even growing up in his childhood, he is nothing other than the object of God's electing love. That's who he is. That's where he appears in the sight of God. I've I've thought of that myself from time to time in connection with the way that I view people. And maybe it might be helpful for you to view people like that too. I mean, sometimes, perhaps even when people wrong you and uh, say or do certain things, and they do them to a measure in ignorance because they don't know the Lord, they don't love the Lord. But if you were to, in your prayer for them, to think, or, or in the way that you treat them, just to think that they might be the Lord's, the objects of His everlasting love, that they might indeed be part of this wonderful election what a difference it makes in terms of how you think about them and how you pray for them and it's a thought to think that the person beside you or in front of you, even if they're walking far away from the things of the Lord may actually be an object of God's electing love so just remember that's who Moses was even if he was still unregenerate in his infancy. The second thing is this that it's not beyond God's power to put some kind of sign on the child's face to convey that to the parents, to convey it to their weak and trembling faith that not only will you keep this child, but this child is mine. And whatever befalls him as the years go by and who knows how much you'll see of it as his mother and father this child will be mine. It will be Jochebed's privilege to raise this child until he's about five or maybe at the most seven. And then he's gone. But he's the Lord's. Do you grudge her that assurance? I don't not with all that she goes through and with everything that she gives up. Again, them that honour me, I will honour. This isn't, of course, just as an aside, really, this isn't the last time that Moses' face uh, shone with God's approval. Eighty years later, when he was on Mount Sinai receiving the law of God, his face shone when he came down from that mountain it shone from his fellowship with God. One and a half thousand years later, he stood on Mount Hermon, along with Elijah and Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, and his face shone there too. And, of course, at 80 years old, it shone as someone who at last knew the Lord. As a child, still unregenerate, but at 80, he knew the Lord. And after one and a half thousand years, It shone there because he had been that long in the presence of God in glory. It's a wonderful thing to think that our faces will shine with the very glory with which the face of Christ shines in glory. So there's a sign to them that he is well-pleasing to God. And so with God's word and with the encouragement that God gives them by a sign, take the child and they hide him. no easy thing many a time there was a sharp intake of breath, perhaps sometimes every time the door knocked there was a sharp intake of breath but God kept that child quiet and the God who told them to keep the child is the God who would watch over the child and um, I think every young mother should remember that too always hear a voice whenever society tells you to get rid of the child hear a voice that says keep the child and God will watch over the child now in some ways we could leave it there but there's an important reason why I feel I can't and the reason for that is because the choice this couple made in verse 23 to let the child live and to hide the child for three months is universally approved. But then, three months later, she makes the choice to cast out the child onto the River Nile. And that choice is so often criticised. It's criticised by people who think that she did wrong. And that her faith failed her. And in some ways, she's best known as the woman who cast him out on the river after three months than the woman who kept him hidden for three months. So I don't feel I can leave this verse without touching on what she did three months later. When she put the child into the basket and she cast him out in the river, was that an act of unbelief or was it an act of faith? Now, as I said, some say unbelief. And they say, why, for example, if it was faith, why was it not mentioned in Hebrews 11 as a great act of faith? The quickest answer to that is that not everything these people did is mentioned in the chapter of faith. All that's mentioned in connection with Jacob is how he blessed his sons when he leant on the top of his staff. That's all. Or many other things that Jacob did by faith. All that's mentioned in connection with Joseph was the commandment that he gave concerning his bones. That's all that's mentioned about Joseph. So it doesn't clinch anything, the fact that casting him onto the Nile is not mentioned as an act of faith. Yes, but some people say, well, Isn't she at last doing what Pharaoh said to be done? Pharaoh said, every child to the Nile. Stephen said that many of the Hebrew people did cast out their children and now she casts them out. He used that expression himself, that when she cast him out onto the Nile. It sounds like faith giving way. It sounds like she said effectively something like this, that I have tried and I have done what you commanded me and I have been kept. But the child surely won't stay as quiet as he's been for these first three months. There's no deliverance. You have not visited us a people. You have not answered our prayers as a people. There's nothing left for me to do but follow the example of other people around me who just give over their child to the Nile and to the genocide. Even the great Matthew Henry at this point says that he wondered if her faith was beginning to fail, although within a couple of sentences he seems to change that. Was it unbelief? Well, friends, I don't think so at all. There's one great reason why we should view putting him out in the basket onto the Nile as an act of faith. One great reason. And that is that everything she does in connection with putting him out onto the Nile is only consistent with someone who is looking for life for that child and not death. It's as simple as that. You can't possibly look at what she does for a three-month-old three boy as anything other than the act of a woman who wants him to live and who believes that he's going to live, not a woman who is giving him over to death. In other words, she is guided by the Lord. Let me just go through what she does and why it's important the first thing is that she prepares an ark she prepares it she pitches it inside a note asphalt and pitch <laughs> why if if you're putting the child into the river to be destroyed and to be consumed and to be eaten up by the animal life in the river what's this for What's the pitch for? Again, not only does she prepare the ark, but she places the ark. don't know if any of us give proper attention to that. She doesn't, you know, you sometimes see children's books and pictures. They can sometimes be a bit misleading. There's nothing wrong with the pictures, but they can sometimes be misleading. You see her just setting out an ark onto the river. As though it could go anywhere. She doesn't do that. She places it in the reeds at the side of the river. Not to move, to be there. And she, she doesn't just put it anywhere. She puts it in the proximity of Pharaoh's palace. Where Pharaoh's daughter bathes. She places the ark. It's not the ark of, not the action of someone who's just letting it go and letting a child go to the devourer. So she prepares an ark and she places it. And then, in her own way, she protects the ark. I'm not referring there to the pitch, but to the fact that she asks her own daughter, Miriam, just to stay at a little bit of distance and watch. What befalls the ark. That doesn't mean um, watch it as it goes down the river, not at all. Just you watch there and see. See who comes near it and, and what happens to it. And what happens to my child. These are the only steps she can take to protect that child. That's all she can do, but she does it. And she does it, friends. In faith. In other words, she's watching and praying. This isn't the act of a woman who's giving up. It's the act of a woman who's asking to God to do the unthinkable. And in some ways it is unthinkable because the Nile is swallowing them up one by one. The Nile is effectively, to all intents and appearances, giving the victory to the devil, giving the victory to the God of this world. Remember, the Egyptians worshipped the Nile, as the source of their life. It was the great divinity. Fear, as we saw in the morning, had the serpent on his headdress and the serpent on his staff. And every single child going into the mouth of the Nile is a triumph for the adversary. And this woman who believed that God told her to keep the child and that God would use the child and God loved the child was, was now having to give the child over to death. Just as Mary herself, who who took the Redeemer into the world, who was indeed beautiful to God, had to, over a period of years, give her own child over to death. Because that was the only way in which life could come into the world. And the fact of the matter is that the life and the future and the destiny of the Hebrew people was inside that little chest. And she watches and she prays over it as a woman of faith. Now I'm mentioning a woman of faith not because her husband has nothing to do with it but because the focus lies on her. She's the one who took the ark. She pitched it. She placed it. She appointed the guard. All with her husband's approval, no doubt. But there are times when The light of God's word focuses on the fact that the woman who was first in the transgression will also have a wonderful role in bringing the Saviour into the world. So it's her faith that comes to the fore. On one hand you can say it's foolish, who can find him, if anyone finds him, it's death. On the other hand, like Noah, she's preparing an hour for the salvation of her household and for the salvation of Israel. And that takes us really to what I just hinted at a second ago and I'm closing with this. And it's just the deep and profound spiritual symbolism that we find in what's happening here. The Hebrew word for ark, she made an ark of bulrushes, she wove them together. The word for ark is not the same word that you have for the Ark of the Covenant but it is the same word as the Ark which Noah built and both are fundamentally chests and both are fundamentally in a sense coffins one is floating on the surface of the waters of the earth cursed by God And the other is sitting or floating on the river Nile. And inside both arcs, like I said, we have the hope of the church. Surrounded by the waters of God's judgment and death. The stench of death is on the Nile. The death of God's people. The death of their children. And in this little coffin... There's someone that's not going to die. Not going to die. Ah, but did she not cast him out onto the Nile? Yes, she did. But in what sense did she cast him out? In what sense did she cast him out? Did she cast him out the way the rest cast him out? Not at all. The Saviour says some very interesting words in his own prayer in Psalm 22. And I was cast... Upon thy care. From my mother's womb until now. I was cast out. Upon thy care. From my mother's womb until now. Cast out by whom? By whom was the saviour cast out? Who cast him. On his mother's care. Well I would say it was God. God. Cast him onto the care of his mother from the woman and fundamentally it is God that casts out this child who she casts that is Jochebed casts her child onto God's care if she had cast him out like the other woman she'd have been tempting providence here she's thrusting providence very different kind of casting out a very different kind and all she can do is watch and pray. Now, let me just close with that. I mean, God is calling all of us to faith. Some of you, he's calling to the first act of faith. Others maybe to a difficult act of faith or a difficult choice to make. If it's the first act of faith that you've still got to make, in other words, to believe in Christ and to come to him, You perhaps see many difficulties and uncertainties too. Uh, So did Abraham and Jokhabe. Believe me. And you see a thousand potential problems. Well, be that as it may, but just cast yourself upon God's care and watch how he looks after these things, one after the other. We'll see next time, uh, God willing, what actually happened to Moses beside the river. Let's pray. (coughs) O eternal God, forgive us for uh, a faith that often trembles in the face of adversity and how sometimes it is too easily conquered by unbelief. Always when we take our eyes off the Saviour, and we look at the wind and the waves. Small wonder then that we begin to sink. But with our eyes upon you then it becomes possible for us to walk upon water too. And because we believe we can say that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Enable us then to see the nobility of faith, to see its beauty, and to see our need of it too, and help us even now, whatever our circumstance, to yield ourselves over to a gracious and merciful God who will do for us exceeding abundantly above whatever we could ask or think. And little did Jochebed understand where Moses would end up and how mightily he would be used. And all this after placing him in a small coffin. In our Saviour's name we pray. Amen. (coughs) Let's close by (coughs) singing. God's word in Psalm 28. (coughs) Psalm 28. At verse 6. And it's good if when we're singing these words, if we can really Internalize them and take them to ourselves by faith. Forever blessed be the Lord, for graciously he heard the voice of my petitions and prayers did regard. The Lord's my strength and shield. My heart upon him did rely, and I am helped. Hence my heart doth joy exceedingly, and with my song I will him praise. Their strength is God alone. He also is the saving strength of his anointed one. And then the appeal to God himself. O thine own people do thou save. Bless thine inheritance. Them also do thou feed. And them forevermore advance. These last four stanzas we stand to sing.
1: for the and be